Good morning. It's so good to be together on this Lord's Day morning. Really good to see so many friends we haven't seen for a while. Um, this is just, just one of my favorite times of year, and this is one of the reasons why. Listening to this singing, those songs that we sang, you didn't know it maybe, but those really prepared our minds for what we want to talk about this morning. And it's about being a friend to Jesus. It's about giving our lives to the one who gave everything to us. It's about our devotion and loyalty to the true king. If you have opportunity, I want to invite you to come back tonight at five o'clock, and we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas and, and what Christians should know about, about this practice we have. You might notice, if you're a guest here, we do things a little bit different. One of our guests that's here today um, had asked me, are we going to have a, a big Christmas program or a play? And I said, no, we're going to take the Lord's Supper and remember Jesus, and we're going to you know, worship God. And there is a reason for that. And we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And we'll also talk about some other things, like what Jesus saw when he looked at children. We'll get into that tonight, but um, there's a reason everybody's here today, that there's so many different guests. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but I was kind of shocked by this number. 96% of Americans buy gifts for their families this time of year. Did you know that? 96%. So there's a pretty good chance that a lot of you guys were thinking about gift giving here lately. Um, thinking, about, thinking about how to give something that means something to those that you love. Gift giving is an expression of, of our affection for someone. In fact, the average American spends $997.73 on Christmas, which is about a week's average pay for, for most Americans. You may have also heard this week some people talking about the idea of gifts given to Jesus. You know, you hear going around uh, the Muzak in the mall, you might hear about a fictional little drummer boy who's trying to think of how can I find a gift that's worthy of a king? You might have heard about these mysterious magi, these wise men who came and brought gifts to Jesus. We want to think this morning about gifts. But we want to think about three particular gifts. Maybe not the gifts you're thinking of. Three particular gifts by three different givers throughout the story of the gospel that gave gifts to Jesus. And we're actually going to talk about a Joseph and a Mary, though not the Joseph and Mary you may be thinking of. And we are going to talk about those magi. As we get into it, I hope we see that there is a greater gift that each of these are giving. And as we think about it, um, we're going to think about... <laughs> Why is it that those wise men were seeking him? I saw this last night or the night before, driving around downtown. I saw this, wise men still seek him. And that is true. There's nothing wiser you can do than to seek Jesus. But who were these, these people that were seeking Jesus? And the purpose of this lesson 
is to point to Christ. And specifically, to tell his story. I've selected these three stories, one from his youth, one from right before his death, and one from right before his resurrection, so that we can think about, as we get our arms around these stories, who Jesus is, why he is such a special king. And as we do so, to inspire devotion in us, to honor him, to help us remember why we are so glad, so freely giving our lives to him. The first gift is the gift of the Magi. First gift I want to talk about. And ancient writers like Plutarch and Xenophon and Herodotus, I know those are just big names and probably not heard of very much, but they speak of these influential advisors. These are ancient historians that use this same word that, that Matthew uses, this Greek word, to describe a group of people who are these influential counselors to all the rulers out over in Mesopotamia, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and on, on down the line through the years, these were powerful people. These were people who were in the courts. These sometimes were those who would appoint a king. These are those who, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Daniel was among in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 2. This is the word that's used to describe that group of counselors. And in verse 48, we read that Daniel became the chief of those magi. He was among them. Of course, he was doing the work that they were doing under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. He was able to interpret dreams better than any of them ever could. And... Among these people, these you know, wealthy people, these advisors to kings, we also see in the New Testament a little later on in Acts 13, this man named Elymas, who, do you remember when Paul, then at the time called Saul, went and he went to this ruler, Sergius Paulus, and he had a magi, Elymas, and he he may have been, sometimes it's translated sorcerer, he may have been a sorcerer, or he may have just been using this term uh, as an a advisor to the king. This is the, the, the term that's used there. These magi that come in Matthew 2, they come from afar. It's taken them years to make this journey. And we sometimes have this picture, I mean, from all the you know, nativity scenes or whatever it is that you see it in, this picture of like three old guys and a camel coming to, to Jesus. And he, they, they come actually to the manger, right? Well, the first thing we need to see is this is not these men coming to the manger and a baby Jesus. This is a toddler Jesus in a house. He's still in Bethlehem, but we read here in Matthew 2, 1 to 12 that he was now in a house, and it has been, the chronologically, it has been a couple years. They've been journeying. And that's why Herod tries to kill everybody who's, all the boys, two and, and younger. 
But the second thing we need to see is these are not only wealthy people, but powerful people. And they surely came with a huge caravan taking this treasure. It would be very dangerous for just a few people to come. And especially if people as powerful as this, they're marching into Jerusalem because where do you expect to see the king of the Jews? And so they go to Jerusalem and they go before Herod the Great. This was in his last years as he's getting more and more paranoid, Herod the Great, and more sickly. And they ask about the king of the Jews. And he's thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. Who are you talking about? These, these people from the empire to the, you know, he's right between the empire of Rome and this, this empire to the east. And where they always fight is right in his territory. And here these powerful people come into his court asking about this new king of the Jews. And he insincerely says, hey, whenever you find him, I want to worship him too. Come back and tell me, for I seek to worship him. And the scribes, who were the experts in the law, these were the best Bible students Herod could find. They knew where to go. They didn't go to worship. They just told these magi, these foreigners, who or where to find him in Bethlehem from the Old Testament scriptures. And so they went and they did find him. And when they came, they did give him these gifts, gifts from the east, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But maybe the more important gift that gives the meaning of those treasures, really, is when it says, and they worshipped him. They worshipped a two-year-old. They had some awareness of who, maybe they didn't see the whole picture, but they saw some awareness. There were many Jews in Babylon, remember, and Daniel was among the Magi many years before. They knew this is the king of the Jews. Of course, they were guided. We could talk a, a whole lesson about the star that guided them. But they came and they bowed down. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And that is the, the, the difference here between the king who insincerely says he's going to worship and the priests and the scribes who should have known who to worship and these magi who came not only spending their money and their treasure, not only spending their time and their energy, taking great risk traveling across these dangerous territories, but then knowing enough about who they're before to honor him in a way appropriate to no one except God. The real gift that we learn from the Magi a gift that we need to be ready always to give to Jesus Christ is the gift of worship. Worship, that is expressing the worth, worthship, extolling, worthy, as, as the, the many say in Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. 
worthy of all the dominion, all the power, all the honor, all the glory. How often every day do you pause to worship Jesus? You know, the Psalms talk about how we become like what we worship. And so these idol worshipers who are worshiping these worthless gods became more and more worthless. But we recognize who Jesus is. He doesn't need our worship, but he deserves it. And the more we worship him, the more we are blessed by that worship. We want our worship to be meaningful, not empty words, not throw in some gold at him. And we start to see in the next two gifts we're going to talk about what that costs and what that means. The next gift is the gift of a woman. We read about in Mark 14, beginning there in verse 2. And he's just called a woman here. We're, I'm just going to call her that because our text is in Mark. She just called a woman here in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3. But there is a parallel account in John 12 that seems very clearly to be this same instance, which identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She's in the, this is in the house of Simon the leper, surely a former leper if he's hosting people. And it has been postulated, perhaps, this is just theory, perhaps Simon the leper is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' dad. Maybe. In any case, this woman does something that everybody around her, most especially Judas, thinks is an utter waste. He takes an alabaster flask full of nard, full of this precious ointment. The value of this ointment is 300 denarii. Three, a, a denarius is a day's wage. This is a year's worth of wages. And in those days, it would have been very hard for a woman to earn that much money. So this is probably an heirloom, a family heirloom that's been handed down to her. And those around her are thinking, as she gives this gift to Jesus, this could have been given, could have been sold and all the money given to the poor. Whether they're sincere or like Judas, probably not at all sincere in this comment. The Judas comment is in the John 12 account. Here it's just those in Mark 14, just those around him are thinking that this is a waste. She takes this ointment and she breaks the flask, which just shows how utterly and absolutely this gift is. She takes nothing back from it. She gives it all and she pours it on Jesus' head. You know, Jesus has been extolled in this time period as the son of David within the Gospel of Mark and in Jerusalem. Remember, David was anointed by Samuel as king. But this is a different kind of anointing. He is not, he says, being anointed as king in this. He is being anointed as a dead man to be. 
He says, He has prepared my body beforehand for burial. This should be an indication as we're reading through Mark that this is a different kind of king with an altogether different kind of coronation that is about to happen in Jerusalem. Herod and the Magi and his own disciples could never have fathomed that he would be proclaimed king of the Jews by a sign hanging above a cross. That the crown he wears would be a crown of thorns. That Jesus, his exaltation, would be when he is lifted up from the earth to hang and die for our sins, as Michael spoke about. And he referred to the blood of Jesus that is the blood of the new covenant taking away the sins of the world. This woman surely didn't understand all that, but she did what she could and it pointed to something greater. She did what she could. Isn't that a great phrase? It's words from Jesus. Have you ever felt like, I can't do all that I want to do for Jesus? I don't know if you've ever felt like, I, I would like to do more than I seem to, you know, I seem to hit a ceiling on my time or my energy or my availability or my gifts. When everybody else dishonored this woman by saying she was wasteful in this act of generosity, thereby, perhaps unknowingly, dishonoring the king who is so worthy of that gift. Whenever everyone else said it was a waste, Jesus said, it is a beautiful thing she has done to me. For she has done what she could. Jesus looks at what a servant does, a disciple does, and says, you've done what you could, and I value that. It's not a, a throwaway, she's done what she could. Yeah, I did a little bit. She did what she could. It cost her. But it was precious and valuable. And, and there's this interesting thing we, in our Mark study not too long ago, we noticed, and, and there's much more prominent, clear examples of this all throughout the gospel, these what we call Markin sandwiches, right? Markin sandwiches, where Mark starts a story, and then before he gets to the end of it, he says another story, and then he picks it up again at the end. And this happens a lot throughout the gospel. And sometimes they're much clearer than this. But our last two instances here that we're talking about seem to be a Markin sandwich to give us a contrast. The idea of these, these Markin sandwiches is you start to get a different, a fuller meaning in both stories. And here we see the, the people, the, the chief priests and the, and, and the rulers trying to seek for the arrest of Jesus. And then the natural next thing that would have happened is then they find someone to help them out. The betrayal 
through Judas. But instead, that's interrupted with the story of this woman's devotion. As if to contrast, Judas, the insider who is pretending to be a disciple, with this woman who's not named here, who's outside of Jerusalem, and who is being looked down on for the gift that she offers. But her devotion, her sacrifice, shows us something that Judas is the antithesis of. And of course, as I said, John 12, one to, uh, verses 1 to 12, highlights this all the more with Judas's comment against this woman. And so we need to get that there is no wasted devotion toward Jesus. It was not a waste. Who, if she could have held on to that, you ever, you ever think, oh, I was saving that for something, you know, for a rainy day or for something else. And then you realize, you know what? I should have just used that back then. Whenever we had this moment, we could have done something special with. If she had saved this all her life, would there be a better thing to use this ointment on than to pour it on the head of the Lord of Lords before he sacrifices himself for us? And Jesus says, rightly, because it's happening today, that anytime anybody preaches the gospel, anywhere the gospel goes, they're going to talk about her sacrifice. They're going to talk about what she did. And we talk about not only her sacrifice, but we talk about a lot of kingdom servants all the time. We talk about people who made an impact on us that have long gone away. But even if no one here is talking about your sacrifice, it does not fade away. It does not lose value. It does not become meaningless, no matter how much time passes away. In heaven, Jesus has the record. Jesus knows. And it will last into a place where other things have faded away, but these things still stand. So at the end of the year, it's always good to think about the past year and the future years. So think about what have you sacrificed for Jesus this year? What have you poured out that somebody else might look at and say, well, that was a lot of wasted time. You know, you were only teaching two four-year-olds and you spent all this time on it. No, it was for Jesus. That was meaningful. That mattered. You know, nobody else saw when you went and visited those folks at the hospital. But that was for Jesus. That lasts, that matters. What we do for him has value. And Jesus says, we don't always talk about beautiful things. The singing this morning, beautiful. Everything we do for the Lord is a beautiful thing, Jesus says to me. And so the gift that she offered is a gift of sacrifice. Jesus, when we honor our king, is worthy of the gift of sacrifice. The third gift is the gift of Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. After Jesus died on the cross, his body needed to go somewhere. 
And Joseph of Arimathea was a ruler in the synagogue. He was someone who was in the, or in the Sanhedrin, rather. He was someone who was in the council. Matthew tells us he was a wealthy man, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be with a rich man in his death. He was wealthy, he was influential, and he was a part of the group. The people he spent his time with every day were this group of people who led the charge to kill Jesus, the Sanhedrin. But he stepped up. And he asked Jesus, or he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus that he might bury him. And he gave him a new tomb that he had prepared for himself, Joseph had. He gave him an honorable burial. You know, what would cause somebody to take a risk like that? You know, political risk, maybe, I mean, he just watch people die. Peter, the one who is most bold earlier, has already denied Jesus and run away. But that same night that Peter ran away, Joseph of Arimathea goes before the man who oversaw this whole thing, Pilate, the governor, and says, I want his body. And we find elsewhere in other gospels that he was a disciple. But here in Mark 15, Mark gives us a few details. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He is a hopeful person who is seeking God's true kingdom. He's looking for the Messiah and for the coming of God's kingdom. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. There is actually another Mark and Sandwich here. <laughs> um, in verses 40 and 41, we see the women at the cross. And in verses 47 to 16:8, we see the women at the tomb, these same women. These, and so it talks about these women. And then in between, we see kind of stuffed in there, between the store, in the middle of the story of the women, there is the story of Joseph. And it's, this is not to diminish these women who, you know, were ministering to Jesus when no one else was. The only two groups of people in the book of Mark that we see ministering to Jesus are angels and these women. I mean, there's honor in what they've done, and they've done this throughout his whole ministry. But in this moment, we see their fear highlighted in both of these instances. They are at a distance from the cross looking on. They're keeping, keeping away. Now, most of the other disciples have run away, period. But they're watching from a distance. And then at the tomb, they're so terrified, they say nothing to anyone about what happens, it says in, in verse 8. But Joseph is highlighted as a man who has courage and takes his stand with Jesus as a disciple at great risk. He speaks boldly. He makes the request and he gives the gift 
Now, Jesus ended up only needing that tomb for like a weekend, right? <laughs> because he's going to raise up and that tomb will be empty on the first day of the week. But in that moment, he gave this pure and beautiful act of devotion and allegiance and courage. And Jesus, owes, Jesus deserves our courage and our daring devotion, our costly loyalty. This goes well with our theme for this past year that we've been talking about, about sounding forth the word. It takes boldness. The early church prayed in Acts 4, give us, as the threats keep coming, give us boldness. They didn't ask for the threats to go away. They asked that they would have boldness to keep speaking. May we have boldness to stand by Jesus in all of the temptations and all of the challenges so that we can be lights in this world. But this also goes with our theme for this coming year that Rick just introduced last week. Is my heart right with God? Because honoring the king starts out and ultimately comes back to an issue of the heart. Worship comes from the heart. Sacrifice comes from the heart. And loyalty comes from the heart. Jesus seeks our sincere service to follow him as these examples did. And he's worth it. What gift can I give fit for a king? These three gifts are fit for the king of kings. These Jesus values more than he valued frankincense and nard and an honorable burial. He values our commitment and devotion to him. May we hold true. May we stand firm in our service to Jesus who's worthy of, of all that we have.